Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for being here with us. Today's episode is another instalment in our Reflections series, looking back at the content published across RA. But this month's episode is extra special. It is not just a piece of content that we're reflecting on, but an entire book. Sacred Spaces is a limited edition book released to celebrate 21 years of Resident Advisor. Inside Sacred Spaces, you'll find 26 people celebrating their most treasured dance floor experiences, from Bergheim to 90s free parties to a small listening bar in Tokyo. Our contributors are musicians, writers, promoters and more, including Kevin Saunderson, Rasheen Murphy and Eris Drew and Okta Okta. Designed by Berlin-based studio Hello Me, the pages of Sacred Spaces are also filled with original archival rave photography provided by the Museum of Youth Culture. Today on the podcast, we are opening up the book. Three of our wonderful contributors have read out their love letters for you and we'll be listening to the voices and words of Colleen Cosmo-Murphy, Sharon White and RA's editor-in-chief, Whitney Way. All these letters that I've picked out for you today are celebrating New York and its spaces ahead of our birthday parties across the city on November 19th. All the information is on our site. I hope that you can make it down and in the meantime, just relax and let yourself be transported with our first letter titled, You Are a Rare Gem, My Friend. Okay, just testing the level, that looks good. Um, By the one and only Colleen Cosmo-Murphy. For most of my life, I have been drawn to the epicenter in which music, spirituality and ritual unite. I studied sound and radio, as well as comparative religions at university, and spent a few months living in Japan, working as a radio DJ and practicing Zen Buddhism. When I graduated, I donned a backpack and traveled throughout Mexico and Guatemala, reading the Popol Vuh sacred texts and visiting the sites of the ancient Mayans. On returning to New York City, I landed my dream job, producing music magazine radio shows. But outside work hours, I would read about shamanism and prepare to go back to school for a master's in anthropology and ethnomusicology. I became increasingly fascinated by music's role as a gateway for spiritual experience throughout the ages. Searching for portals through which I could go beyond my own ego and experience a collective oneness through music became my mission. Along my search, some of the peaks included playing in drum circles and succumbing to moments of communal transcendence at the Grateful Dead and Butthole Surfers gigs. But when my late friend Adam Goldstone took me to a place in Alphabet City and Manhattan's East Village, I found a home that truly resonated. There was no way of knowing what was behind those double doors of the former theater at 238 East 3rd Street. There were none of the usual indicators of a nightclub, such as signage or security. In fact, it wasn't a nightclub at all, but a private party hosted by somebody who would later become one of the most significant people in my life, David Mancuso. His home, known as The Loft, seemed of another place and time, and in a way it felt like 1960s hippie social idealism married with the 1970s ecstatic dance of abandon. But it was also very now, 
with the electric currents of psychedelic energy that course through the music, transporting the dancers to a physical and mental space where we could be in the moment. I had arrived. Over the past two decades, David had created a communal escape hatch in which the medium was music and music was a message. Step by step, he had perfected all the different elements that would help his guests transcend beyond their everyday reality. The goal of the music was to raise people's life energy, to infuse positivity and a spirit of oneness. The purity of his audiophile sound system that he had painstakingly assembled from the highly sensitive Kuetsu moving coil cartridges through to the efficient horn-loaded clipshorn speakers allowed the music's healing force to shine through. Without knowing David or anything about the loft, from the first moment I stepped through those doors, I knew that this music was being channeled rather than played, and that everyone on the dance floor was part of the process. We were all in this together. The atmosphere was also vital to this feeling. With the bed in the corner, sofas around the dance floor, a kitchen along the back wall, and his cat, our pal Wolfie, roaming around, we all felt at home. The ramshackle arts and crafts decor and sea of balloons surrounding the great mirror ball allowed me to abandon ego-driven young adult concerns and anxieties. I was able to give myself over to my inner child and indulge in the joy and wonder. The dance floor was a sacred space free of commercial transaction. The cloakroom, as well as the vegetarian buffet that was served at dawn, were free of charge, and most crucially, there wasn't a bar, as it was BYOB. David and his loft had an independent, renegade attitude, completely divorced from my previous experiences of nightlife. Most importantly, social barriers came tumbling down. David was a keen supporter of civil rights, women's liberation, gay liberation, and economic parity, and his principles were invigorated by a melting pot of people from all walks of life who left their labels at the door. People were friendly and respectful, self-policing themselves. I never saw a fight break out, and as a young woman, I felt comfortable going to the party alone, dancing with people I didn't know, always feeling safe. I was able to let my hair down and be free. My first experience at the loft changed my life and I dove in head first. I became a regular at David's parties and when I reached the age of 25, was allowed to become a fully-fledged member. In the decade before stepping into David's loft, I had been collecting records and hosting radio shows and had dabbled in DJing at spots like CBGB's Record Canteen and Club Mars. But after experiencing the loft for the first time, I felt transformed and decided that rather than returning to school as an academic looking into the culture from the outside, I wanted to be in it. I started assembling a new collection of records, launched a new dance radio show, and began DJing properly. Soon after, I invited David to be a guest on my radio show and was absolutely floored when only weeks later, he invited me to play some records with him at The Loft. This was the beginning of a deep friendship, mentorship, and working relationship for David and I that grew stronger and deeper as the years went by. I had found this person to guide me further along my pursuit of musical and spiritual transcendence. David was my family, and in turn he told his closest friends that he thought of me as a daughter. 
Who knows where I would have ended up had I not been taken to the loft that first time. For nearly a quarter of a century, David taught me about his philosophies on sound and music and helped me gain practical experience, too, at the parties in New York and then later when we brought the loft to London. Step by step, set up by set up, party by party, I became more steeped in David's principles, hoping to transmit the life energy of music transcendence and transformation, and the feeling of community in my DJ sets, radio shows, and classic album Sunday's listening sessions. This is a lifelong quest for me, and it is always evolving. But I felt I was on the right path when David sent me this message a few years before his passing. See, you and I are the only two people I know in all the years that can cover as many bases there are for the parties and who try faithfully and spiritually to get it right. You are a rare gem, my friend. D-X-O-X-O-X-O. Next up, we hear from the legendary DJ Sharon White with her letter, Moments I'll Always Remember. I'm often asked what it was like being the first woman DJ in a market like New York City. What was it like to break glass ceilings? And what was it like to have a residency at the Saint and Studio 54 and the Roxy and the Limelight? Not to mention a decade playing on Fire Island and so many other clubs in that era. Well, being a trailblazer was not my intention. All I wanted was a fair shake, an opportunity to play music from my heart and soul be judged on my performances and my talent, not my gender, skin color, or sexual preference. But I have come to realize, in retrospect, that had I not achieved some of the things I did in my early career, many of the women DJs and producers performing today may not have found their home. It was January 31st, 1981, a freezing cold Saturday night. DJ and remixer Jim Burgess was playing his final farewell to DJing that night at legendary New York City club, The Saint. The crowd was at capacity, with nearly 6,000 people there to play homage to a great DJ. It was close to 8 a.m., and Jim took an unexpected change in tempo, shifting into a Barbara Streisand track. He then collected himself and two dozen white roses and departed the booth. What was next? I knew he wasn't coming back. One of the managers asked me to do something. Not without Mark, I said, who was a technical director, lighting designer, and also my best friend. Jim pleaded with me to help. I stepped into the booth and grabbed the record before swiftly being told that Jim did not want anyone touching his records. My answer was fine. I'll be more professional than he was, and I granted his final wish. I let the song play out, best of my love by the emotions, and then exited the booth to the sound of applause. Meanwhile, everyone trying to exit the club found the cloakroom cues to be hopelessly jammed. Mark caught up with me and demanded that I go up to his loft above the saint and get his records. Are you crazy, I said, on this system? Your records sound like somebody has spaghetti dinner on them. He gave me a look, so I grabbed a couple of friends for the daunting task ahead. A rush of fear swept over me. We went upstairs and 
packed a couple of crates, and headed back down to the club. I didn't want to attract attention by carrying records through the crowd, stuck, stoned, and wondering what to do next. The dancers had nowhere to go except outside into the cold without their coats. As I walked three flights of stairs down to the club level, I remember saying, now I know what it means to be a dead man walking. By the time I got back downstairs, Mark had cleared the booth. It's not the way we planned it, he said, but the room is yours. It hadn't been announced yet, but I was scheduled to play the last Saturday in March. Mark put his job up as collateral in order for me to be booked. The owner didn't want a woman at the helm of this great ship he had built. 28,000 watts of power and 10,000 on backup. The sound system was one of a kind. Built by Peter Spar, it was a delicate combination of high mathematics and pure artistry. I began to play my set, unconsciously reaching for Samaria's dance and leave it all behind you. I've always been known for my grasp of thematic production, and this night would debut my ability to play by the seat of my pants like never before. I sent the crew to my flat with instructions to bring every piece of vinyl that wasn't tied down. I played till almost two in the afternoon, and <laughs> what an unexpected debut it was. By the way, Jim never got paid for his swan song. I did. I later became one of the top grossing DJs on the Saints roster. And on a final note, patience is indeed a virtue. Okay, so the last letter that I have to share with you today from RA's book, Sacred Spaces, comes from our editor-in-chief, Whitney Way. This is On Coming of Age in the Club. At 6 a.m. on Saturdays, I was usually asleep on the New York City subway. I'd find a nice corner on one of those lavender blue plastic seats, prop my arms up on the metal railing to use as a pillow, and shut my eyes to the fluorescent subterranea until I gently rattled my way down to Flatbush. I'd even mastered the art of being able to wake up exactly as the train doors opened to Beverly Road, the station nearest to where I lived. But on occasion, if I'd had too much to drink, I'd open my eyes and clamber out somewhere in southern Brooklyn, near Sheepshead Bay, shivering at the violet daybreak as I waited on the outdoor platform for a ride in the opposite direction. More often than not, I was coming home from clubbing in Bushwick. I remember those fatigued and acutely solitary hour-long journeys, almost as vividly as the heaving spectacle of the parties themselves and, in a way, still cherish them for my naive dedication towards chasing the evocative nocturnal experience that is never quite guaranteed. This is around 2016, when I was 23 years old. I had just been fired from my PR job in Manhattan and was balancing collecting unemployment checks with writing music criticism, so I had ample time to waste. On Fridays, in preparation for the social stretches ahead, I'd wander around the women's clothing stores that dotted Flatbush Avenue near the King's Theater, the ones that smelled of cloying synthetics with names like Weekend for Ladies and Samba Fashions to try on skin-tight pleather pants or rhinestone fishnet dresses before heading home with a handful of black mesh. 
Back then, I didn't know what to do or what I liked and was constantly plagued by this inchoate malaise that felt so deep for someone who had experienced so little. But at Palisades, a cinder block of a venue wedged between Stockton and Broadway, everyone looked equally as unmoored in their lives, so I felt a bit better. Plus, they had good taste in music. The sound at Palisades wasn't world-class by any means, but that didn't seem to matter much because there was something about that venue. Unassuming, intimate, yet fizzing with this juggernaut energy that I've not been able to find since. In the mid-2010s, the era's dominant soundtrack consisted of post-dubstep, grime, deconstructed club, FDM, and ballroom. Fittingly, Skepta, Young Lean, LSD XOXO, Juliana Huxtable, Mike Q, Kevin Jay-Z Prodigy, Goucher Lustwork, and Acemo all performed during the venue's barely two-year run as they slowly came up on the global scene. The first time I went, I remember Iconica at the back of the stage, nodding her unruly snapback in time to the beat as Jubilee and the other artists gathered around during the final set. The audience went off, as they always seemed to, and took very little to do so at Palisades. Next to the entrance, where people with dirty hair would gather with their cans of Paps Blue Ribbon beer, there was a big shop window. It was like a giant flat-screen television into a sliver of the mayhem between those black walls. Except instead of pointillistic pixels, there were streaks of opaque condensation. At a typical DWMS night run by PTP, FK, Purple Tape Pedigree Labelhead Gang, there would be the underground iconoclast Andrew Okambi dancing in his trademark wide stance, cordoning off the back space with his unbridled, sinewy movements. Jennifer Payan, another club staple and an emerging professional dancer at the time, was unafraid to plant herself right up next to the performers, as though she was one herself even though no one officially booked her. Up there, she'd interpret the rhythms by twisting her arms into concentric figurations. Between these two pillars, the rest of us would jaggedly flail around, even with more conviction, as if just gazing at a combi and Jen gave us the permission to. On one occasion, during an MM back-to-back pseudonym set, I was surprised to find my friend of a friend from Columbia, the then-unknown Timothy Chalamet, suddenly appear on stage next to Jen to have his own limbered sway in the spotlight. Not wanting to be upstaged by either, a combi found a drum and started beating it with a vigorous bravura. Founded in April 2014, and closing shortly thereafter in June 2016 due to multiple building violations, Palisades is a gossamer ghost in the New York City nightlife graveyard. It was almost nothing in comparison to the gossip column scandals and murder mysteries of deceased 90s Manhattan megaclubs like the Limelight and Palladium, or the early wave of pre-vice Williamsburg filth known as 285 Kent and Glasslands. No, there are no legends of cruel door policies or flagrant open sex that will circulate this club's mythology beyond its death. Only solid bookings and unpretentious people. But talk to the right heads in New York, and they'll sing praises. It was on this dance floor where I decided to continue to try partying as my profession. Shortly after the venue shut down, Trump got elected, and I decided to move to Berlin, the Hollywood for DJs, where the daylight hours are so gray that it almost isn't worth waking up until it's time to go out raving again. 
Now, when I think back about Palisades, about something so formative in my life, having little to no impression on the public imagination, I'm thankful for the nightlife ephemera for which there is no oral legend nor documentation that must instead be seared into one's psyche out of a sheer sensation alone. It is what's so arcane about the electronic music world. In this marketplace of experiences, this culture offers so much that can never be held onto. And it was at Palisades where I learned to love the way it felt as it slipped so quickly through my fingers. I really hope that you enjoyed hearing the love letters to sacred spaces. There's more information on the book and all RA's birthday celebrations in the description of this podcast. Our whole archive is available for you to take in any time that you like. Find the RA Exchange on your preferred podcast platform and hit subscribe. Until next time, take care.